Before you start any project, you really need to know the goal of the project. And I know that sounds very simple, but it really isn't. You'll see sometimes, you ever told people, let's say, to work on a bake sale. And they'll work hard for a lot of weeks, and they'll make like $5,000. And the truth is, they lost focus of the goal. The goal was to make money. The goal wasn't to work hard. The goal is to make money. Sometimes you work on a project and the goal is to create um, publicity. And you'd have to make sure that that's, you're really accomplishing that goal when you start the project. You have people, let's say, work on a tzedakah situation and they'll do something for tzedakah, they'll sell tickets. And after hours and days and weeks of work, they made $1,000. Again, you really lost sight of the goal during the whole effort to get to that goal. So, next week we're off, which means it's our last class before Pesach. So, we need to really look and focus on what is the goal of the eight days of Pesach. And what are we trying to accomplish? And usually for the next, for the past three weeks and for the next week and a half, we're really focused on just working, 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 which is good. And we spoke last week about how great that is and what's accomplished in the actual working. But what are you trying to be ready for? Is the goal just to have clothing on all your kids? Is the goal to have a table that's set? Those are pretty good goals, right? Pretty hard to accomplish goals. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to try to get to a deeper goal and a more, really the overall goal of what you're trying to accomplish with the clothing, with the table set, with the house that's clean, and so on. We have some concepts in Pesach that I'd like to analyze. I'd like to understand what is the message of the Matzah. What's so bad about Hametz? And why do we have this unique sacrifice called the Korban Pesach? And the Korban Pesach was really a very different kind of sacrifice. It was done in a group. It was done in the, when they did it in Mitzrayim. They had to hold it for four days. So we want to understand these three really central concepts to Pesach. What's good about Matzah, what's bad about Hametz, and what is the Korban Pesach. The Pasuk says, we actually mentioned in the Haggadah, Hashem says, When we talk about what's great about what Borei Olam did for us on Pesach, most of you, if I asked the greatest thing that Hashem did, you'd, some of you might say the sea split. Another one might pick the sixth plague. Someone else might pick the third plague. Someone else might pick Matan Torah. I'm going to give you a little something else that you not, may not be not aware of its power and the magnitude of it. And that is, like I said, God performed this miracle. He took a nation from amongst a nation. This was a very powerful thing that Hashem did. Is that He took a nation from a nation. To explain it a little further, it would be as if you took a like taking a baby out of its mother's stomach. A baby out of its mother's stomach is that for a while the baby is just a part of the stomach, is a part of the mother's body. And then, and then, oh wow, welcome. Finally on the hardest week of the year to come, we get to see you. <laughs> so, the, the baby is in the mother's stomach. That baby is a part of the body. And then suddenly to separate it and make it its own individual 
is a very important, a very hard process. So what do I mean? I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You know, yesterday was a holiday. St. Patty's Day. <laughs> you know about this day, right? Now, what's funny about this day to me is that, is that, you know, you go to the city. I wasn't in the city, but I hear that the whole city is like in gridlock because there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people walking around in green, drunk like a fish, walking all over the... Right? Because like, they're supposedly... Irish. What's funny is you walk down the street, you don't know who's Irish. You walk down, you see a person, you can point out this man, you're an Irishman, you're an Irishman, you know, you, you know an Irishman from an Italian, from a, you, you have no idea. They're regular Americans. There's nothing unique. There's no Irishman, right? On St. Patty's Day, they suddenly become Irish, right? And you see that these people are Irish. The Jewish people were in Egypt for 210 years, which means they were very, very, very much like everybody else. And very, very much a part of the culture and the rest of Egypt. So the separation was not a simple thing that you would say, you walk around and say, well, of course, this is a Jew, this person keeps Shabbat, and this person is praying three times a day, this person is not. They weren't praying three times a day, they weren't really keeping Shabbat, they didn't have any of the laws, and so in essence, it was like taking... Man A from B to C, there was not really that much of a difference. And so one of the great and unique things that Borei Olam did is that he somehow saw a difference between the Jew and his neighbor. And the whole process of those final few weeks that the Jewish people were in Egypt was to create that separation. Because in reality, like I said, just like you can't tell an Irishman from an Italian, you walk down the street, you cannot tell the difference between the two, there was not really much of a difference between a Jew and an Egyptian. Do you think a man's Irish? It tells you, oh, I'm Irish. And why? Because my parents came from Ireland in 1790. Like, okay. 1790 is a very long time ago. No one's really remembering, or if they came in 1815, no one's really remembering that you came from Italy in 1822. It's not really relevant now. The Jews came from a foreign land 200, over 200 years earlier, they had, they were a regular part of to take a nation from a nation, to take what seemed like the same, to make it different, and to make it unique, was very, very hard. That's why we had the Korban Pesach. The Korban Pesach was brought as a sacrifice. We took specifically a sheep, which was precisely their God. And we had to take it and hold it by our bed for four days. What's the point? There's no other sacrifice in the world that you have to hold for four days. Why did we take a Korban Pesach? Why did it have to be a sheep? Why did it have to be held for four days? The point was that it should be a foreign God. It should be something that they see. You're sacrificing our God. You're obviously not the same thing as us. And you're obviously very different than everybody else. And you kept it there for four days so it was time that people would see how unique it was and people would see how different you are. People would get agitated by it and that little friction would start to create the separation. That's why the blood on the doors was so important. Because really the truth is an Egyptian house and a Jewish house was not different. You didn't walk in and see mezuzahs on doors. They didn't have that. You didn't walk in and see sifarim. You didn't see people learning or classes. That wasn't. That didn't happen. You didn't see meat and milk. All this did not exist. It exist. A Jewish house was like an Egyptian house. It was really almost exactly the same. And so the point of the Koban Pesach was to create that separation. 
That's why the Korban Pesach is the only pay, pay, Korban that we do as a group. Usually we either do a Korban, me as an individual, I bring my own sacrifice, or there's a sacrifice like for the whole nation. Over here the Korban Pesach is groups gathered together. And the way it was done throughout the years, on Erev Pesach, groups would gather together and bring this sacrifice. They'd come to the Beit HaMikdash, you'd come with your 30, 40 people, maybe all the people you're making Seder with, so all your cousins and aunts and uncles would all go together, and they would choose this Korban Pesach, they'd come to the Beit HaMikdash, there'd be thousands of other families there, and they would come in and they'd bring their sacrifice together, and everyone would be singing Hallel on the Pesach afternoon, and I'd bring my, we'd bring our sacrifice, and your family would bring the sacrifice, and then the other family would bring the sacrifice and one family after another and this big process with thousands of people present because what we were trying to do with this Korban Pesach was create a nation was create a group that we were not just a bunch of individual people just residents of Egypt we were now a group we were now a nation we were now on our own and so we were creating this separation this difference that's what was really happening. Besides all the miracles, the goal of all the miracles was to create this. Was to create a unique, standalone nation. To take a nation from a nation. Was to make, create that separation, create that uniqueness. Now like I said, natural courses were not that, the natural way was that we were not different. Well, if you looked around, you would see that we were like everybody else. The Pasuk says, Hashem, Hashem with His mighty hand took us out of Mitzrayim and therefore don't eat chametz. What do the two things have to do with each other? With His mighty hand took us out of Mitzrayim therefore don't eat chametz. Chametz and matzah and this is important. Matzah, chametz represents just leaving it be. How do you make a chal? you ever bake chali? You knead the dough, you put it on the counter and you leave it there. And you go out, you go for an errand, you come back. That's how the chali is made. You leave it there. The key difference between that and matzah is the exact, a matzah is the exact opposite. Matzah isn't left, I don't know if you've ever seen the experience of matzah bakery. It's not left for one second. The whole process, you know, they say 18 minutes, it doesn't take 18 minutes. A matzah usually takes about four minutes to be done. There's one man, there's a man who stands there with a bowl. One person pours in a cup of water. Another person pours in a cup of flour. He kneads it for about 60 seconds. He takes the dough, gives it to a man. He cuts it up in about 20 seconds. Then they take the cut pieces. There's 20 women. Each one rolls it out into a flat. A flat bread takes another 30 seconds. And now it takes two seconds to bring it to a man who rolls out holes. Now someone else comes, takes a stick with five of them on the stick, goes into the oven, puts it down on the oven... It stays in the oven for two minutes and it's done. That's the whole process. Almost as fast as it took me to say it, it takes to do it. Literally, it takes four minutes. The key of baking matzah is that you never stop. That you're working, you're active, you're not allowing it just to go its natural course. You're not allowing it to go its natural course. What Borei Olam did when, Mitzrayim, when, in, in, when he took us out of Egypt was not just to create supernatural miracles, but he created supernaturally through his miracles he created a nation that really wasn't separate he separated something that in his natural course wasn't going to be separate he made he went, uh, went against the nature that was happening and made us our own nation he gave us the mitzvot he gave us the Koban Pesach in order to make that distinction to make that separation 
When we eat Matzah Pesach, we're saying that same thing, that we're fighting the course of nature and we're not just allowing it to go on its own course. And let me tell you what I mean by how far the world goes on its own course, how rapidly the world goes on its own course, and how much our job is to make that distinction. I read this. This is, to me, it's an amazing fact. When they invented the radio, how fast did it take for 50 million people to own a radio? They say it took 38 years for 50 million people to own a radio. When the TV was invented, how fast did it take for 50 million people to own the TV? It took, I think it was, I think it was 13 years. When internet was invented, it took only four years for 50 million people to own it. When Facebook was invented, it took eight months for 100 million. You see how rapid... And now there's over 400 million users across the world. I mean, Facebook just came out a few years ago, and now it's, of course, 400 million people. I mean, there are 400 million people that own a computer, 400 million people that even know how to type a computer. There's, it, what's happened is that the world has... Ha- is the course of nature is becoming faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. It's getting its clutches on us and on our kids and really roping us in. It happened to the Jewish people in Egypt. What was happening to people in Egypt is that they were getting more and more and more. When they talk about the 49 levels of Tumah, it's not just like a statement. Most times you say it as a kid, it sounds like halfway voodoo. 49 levels of Tumah means that they were basically Egyptian. The Jews were Egyptian. There was no distinction. They were like an Irishman in America. You can't really tell the difference. They were part of society. And Hashem's great force that He did is, is He went against that nature, and he went against what was happening and the flow, and he went totally against the stream in order to create this nation. And so we have to create, do that same midah. And that midah is to fight. Fight meaning to take, and not allow it just to go its course, and just allow ourselves to just float along how everybody else is. No. To stand apart, separate, and in this sense, and create our own selves, our own nature, our own being, our own nation. So how do you do this? And this is important. This is really, in other words, saying, how do you break habits that you have? You ever have a habit? It's a habit. You ever turn around and say, oh my gosh, I have this habit. I just, it's part of me now. This is what I do. I've been doing it for six months. And uh, maybe it's eating. This is my habit. You know, I've been eating this snack every single day. Uh, this is the habit. Or, you know, I drink coffee. I don't realize I drink three cups of coffee a day. Right? Not me. I don't drink any coffee. But let's say you you'd say that all of a sudden, that's your habit. Or maybe you say, you know what, I have this habit. Wow, I'm watching two hours of TV at night. Or, wow, I'm, I'm really spending... Uh, sometimes you turn around and you say to yourself, you know what, I've been spending an hour and a half on a computer in a row doing nothing. How you know it's a habit? You look back and you say, I've been doing this for five months. It's obviously a habit. It's not just happens to be today, I need a pair of shoes. This is becoming me. So how do you break a habit like that? So I'm going to use a part of our history to answer this question and then try to answer, explain it into, into Pesach. And I think this portion of history is one of the most least understood 
and at least really, uh, like I said, how it works in and how it fits in into Jewish history. And this is this portion and the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. In most of your minds, we had two Beit HaMikdash. We had first and second, and we're waiting for the third. Right? Isn't that how you think of it? That's how you've always been told it. It's not quite that way. We really had one, and sort of a second. And there's, there's, it's documented, there are a lot of differences. One of the key differences is the Aron, which is the holiest vessel in the Mishbet HaMikdash, we didn't have in the second Beit HaMikdash. We didn't have the sec- this whole vessel we didn't have. And so most people think the reason why we didn't have it is because we didn't know where it was. There's actually proofs from the Gemara and so on that they actually knew where the vessel was, they just didn't use it. Because the people weren't worthy of having it. It was built under foreign rule. It was built, if you look... In, the, in a lot of the parts of it, and we'll go through a few of them, you'll see that it really wasn't, we weren't really in all our glory in that second Beit HaMikdash. And some of the rabbis say the real point of that second Beit HaMikdash was really we were supposed to be in exile the whole time. And God knew we were going to be in exile for a, whole, a long time. And so He gave us this little energy pill at the beginning of the exile called the Beit HaMikdash to sort of get us through it. And so really, even the, really this Beit HaMikdash was more of an exile existence than a real Eretz Yisrael existence. That's why if you look, during that time, we spoke Aramaic. It was not Hebrew language. The Gemara, the Yushami is written in Aramaic. Do you know the names of the months? Do you have it? anyone know any names of the Hebrew months? Give me a name. Nisan, Yasivan, thank you. Did you ever see that name in the Torah? The answer is no. It's not Hebrew words. Babylonian words. Nisan, Yasivan is not Hebrew words. In the Torah it always says the second month, the fourth month, doesn't say those words. We use the Babylonian names to the months. Why is that? Because we were really, and that's because the months really where we got these names was during around this period of the second Beit HaMikdash, and we were really in a exile existence. That's why we didn't have the Aron, because we're not really in the Beit HaMikdash. What Hashem gave us was like a pill. Like what I mean is that is like a something to give us a little engine, a little ammunition to make it through the next 2,000 years of exile. But really it was a, not a, 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 a... That's why there was no kings of the Malchut Beit David. did not exist in the Beit HaMikdash. The king was supposed to come from the house of David. That was only in the first not in the second, because we were not in our comfort zone. We were not really in Eretz Israel, so to speak. We were using Israel, and we had a building there, and we went to serve there, but it wasn't real Eretz Israel. It wasn't real Jewish people in all their glory. In fact, something very almost strange is that when we say, when we say the... When the, excuse me, when the Nevi'im, when the Hashem talks about, the Prophet Yechezkel talks about the third Beit HaMikdash before he talks about the second. Yechezkel talks about the third and then Haggai talks about the second. That's out of order. If you're going to predict, <coughs> predict first the second. Then when the second is leaving, predict the third. That's not how it goes. Yechezkel predicts the third and then we get a prediction on the second. What is that? The answer is the real goal was the third. The second was not really achieving that goal. The second was just here to help us along the way to get to that goal, to give us this experience of something like the Beit HaMikdash to sort of arm us for the next 2,000 years of exile. You understanding?
What I'm saying is that this Beit HaMikdash was not, it was real, but it wasn't real. It didn't, it wasn't the whole thing. It was just to give us something to sort of help us go forward. I think this may be why in the, in the, in the beginning of the Haggadah, we start the Haggadah with Halach Ma'anya. And one of the classic questions that's asked is why is it in Aramaic? Why is it not in the Hebrew language? So the famous answer is that you're inviting guests, so you use Aramaic, which was the language of the time. Others say you're talking, Hashem is present and Aramaic. The angels don't understand, Hashem does understand. I think based on this we can say another answer. is that we're saying, Halach Ma'anya is sending a message. We're not using our Hebrew language. We're using the Aramaic language, which is not Hebrew. We, we're still in an exile existence. And we're sending this message as we're starting to say that, that as much as we're doing this said that, it's not, we're not really where we want to be. We're not really back on edge Israel with the Beit HaMikdash and all our glory. So we're saying in Aramaic to say we're foreign. We're still not in our real existence. We're in sort of this fake existence. That's what we need to accomplish on Pesach. As we need to accomplish that experience of giving ourselves and giving our families that experience, that sort of pill to be able to go through the rest of the year. When you have, every day, we go through our natural course and we go through the regular, we, the regular flow and like everybody else, computers and all that nonsense. Pesach is eight days to be distinct. Pesach is eight days to create for your family an uplifting experience that they can use, an experience of freedom even though we're not really having freedom. The experience of freedom, the experience of Kiddushah that they can use for the rest of the year. There's so often, you'll see people who have, I was talking to a boy recently, he said, Rabbi, I learned for a month somewhere. I learned really good for a month. And he says, I want to keep learning. I said, what was it? You know, it's that one month, that one month experience gave him energy and gave him the desire to keep wanting to match it. If you give yourself an experience sometimes, you know, sometimes, like I said, you give an example. Let's say you don't want to have coffee. You have too much coffee. So now you can't stop it for a whole year. But if you give it an experience for three days of see what it's like without it, and then it sort of creates yourself. You know what? I can do without it a little bit. Or maybe I can go a little further. You give yourself that break, that stop, to, to, give, it, to give yourself energy and ammunition to go further. Let's say I gave you an example. Let's say you have a bad habit. You're on the computer all the time. So now you can't say I'm going to stop being on the computer. But what you could say is that for a week, I'm not going online. For a whole week, I won't go online. You'll survive. Every now and then you actually go to a store to buy something. And that's it. You'll live. If you have a vacation to book, you'll wait a week. And you won't go online for a week. So you give yourself that time. All of a sudden, or for a week, I'm not going to have my cell phone on me. So that you give yourself a break. And something where you can't do this really your whole life. But you can do it for a week. If you have a child with a bad habit. And they can't stop it. But if they can stop it for a week, they can have a clear head for a week, and they can have an experience where they can remember that experience and keep wanting to live up to that. That experience is what you're trying to create on Pesach. Pesach is not just supposed to be a clean house, well-dressed kids who eat good food. Pesach is supposed to be an experience. Pesach is supposed to be a time where you and your family get uplifted. Where the Seder is an experience. My wife you gets at the said that she does this for the kids. She'll get, when my mother-in-law first started it, they'll get like these 
cost, not costumes, but like different masks for the ten plagues, for the ten makot. What's the point of it? It's to give the kids that an experience where they're feeling excited about the seder, where they're a part of the seder. You don't just do it. You have to live it. You have to create. Why do we have to reminisce about the freedom? We're in exile. We've been in exile for thousands of years. Why are we reminiscing about the freedom? It's because we want to give ourselves something to live up to. Something to, to point to. Something to try to achieve. You can't get that, that level of cherut and whatever that cherut means. That kiddushah, we can't bring it into our lives every day. But we could bring it into our lives for eight days. Why isn't Pesach just one day? Make it a day, the day we left, and that's it. You want to have another day for the day of the, of the splitting of the sea? Make another day. Why do we have, why is it a whole week of a holiday? The answer is because it's there to create this break, this experience where you're sort of separating or going against the tide for a week, where you're not being like chametz, instead you're being like matzah. You're doing something different. You're separating yourself, you're making yourself distinct, you're making your family distinct, you're creating that experience which will give you the energy to be able to go forward. But it's very important that we don't just, like I said, when you know, when you're working on a project and don't know the goal of the project, I've, you see sometimes people work on a bake sale, work on a Chinese auction and make no money. So what was your point? You had 20 people work very hard, put it all together and you didn't make money. There was no point wasn't just to make an event. The point was to earn money with the event. The same thing is that your point is not just to work and just to clean a house and set it up and then fall asleep. The point then is to, is to then wake up. Is to then have experience it. To sit there, you know, so a woman will be at a sedet and they'll be there, they're so be back and forth in the kitchen, in and out, getting the food, setting up the food, and then, oh, okay, we pour some wine now, so they'll pour some wine, they'll eat something, go back in the kitchen. No. Sit and live it. And make sure your children are living it. Make sure, you, make sure your families are living it. Make sure they're experiencing it. Make sure every day of Pesach, make sure they understand matzah. Uh, matzah. No. Matzah is something that, that is a very, very important and powerful message. Hashem did not just decide that, you know what, for eight days, I'm going to put my people through pain and call it freedom. <laughs> that wasn't the goal of Pesach. Eight days of stomach aches and then just can't wait to turn back over. No. It's eight days where you're supposed to get a message out of that matzah. We are supposed to understand that it's telling us something that we're not just going with our regular course like everybody else. We're crazy. We're eating matzah. We're eating flat bread. Uh, it's hard to eat. It's not even exciting to eat, but we're eating it. We're different. We're separating. We're not just part of the hundred million who just join on Facebook and don't even know what it is. We do it differently. That's what we're trying to create at our center. And that's what we're trying to create during the course of that week. Is that... If you're having a tough time, it's not tough this week. If you're having a sad time, you're not sad this week. If you're having a time where you feel like financially is difficult, make it not difficult this week. Make this week an experience. Make cherut something real. There's a reason why they tell us to lean and to make it feel the freedom and to dress with the freedom and to... It's not just... Things that they say. It's a real thing. That you're supposed to create an experience for your family. Hashem created this 400 year experience for the Jewish people to help them live through 2,000 years of exile. If you create an 8 day experience for your family, it'll give them something for weeks and weeks to come. 
It'll take them through this to something that they keep pointing to, that they want to live up to, that they want to match and they want to keep and that they want to say, you know what, that's us. We're not just a regular mundane everybody else. We're not Hametz. We're Matzah. We're unique. We're special. And explain based on this. In fact, I'll explain two parts, parts of the Haggadah. We say in the Haggadah, Ma ha'avodah hazot lachem. The Rasha asked the question, What are you doing this for? So there's a million explanations. Why is he saying you? And he's trying to say you. And it's an often asked question in the Haggadah. I saw a unique interpretation. What he's asking is, is that here, this is Rasha, the evil son. So he's talking to his family who's religious and observant. He says, what are you gaining from this? You wear tefillin every day. You have a mitzvah on your door every day. You're doing a lot of mitzvah. You're saying Kiyat Shema every day. You do a lot of things that commemorate Mitzrayim. What are you accomplishing with this that you didn't accomplish yesterday? He doesn't get it. What we're accomplishing is we're making it every day. We're remembering and reminding ourselves. This day we're experiencing. And we're feeling that week where we're giving ourselves something to live differently. It's more than just talking about Egypt. It's living the freedom. It's living the Beit HaMikdash. It's living with the where we're trying to accomplish. And that's why it says that by the son that can't ask the question, the any Adelish all, it says, At Petach Lo You. In a feminine, At means, how do you say you to a man? Ata. How do you say you to a woman? At. The problem is this boy is not a woman. So why are you saying At in a feminine? So this, it's again a very famous question. One of the answers is, is that this boy obviously is not really very motivated. He can't even ask a question. He's not very interested. He's not very intelligent. When he's not very intelligent, you have to talk to him. Instead of coming from the intellectual side, you have to come with the emotional side. And you have to cater to almost, I don't mean like a girl, but like, that doesn't mean that's not negative. But I mean something where you're talking to him, where you're getting him excited. Get him into the feeling. Get him into the mood. Let him feel, wow, that was a great night. That was a great week. There, your children show after the holiday. The holiday was awesome. Not just, oh, I had you with the matzah. I can't wait to get a bagel. It should be that it was an uplifting experience. So, at this time, you can't try with the whole intellectual. You go with the intellectual son, go intellectual. But with the son that's the emotional, that's not really interested, create interest, create excitement, create enthusiasm. If it means putting on a mask, put on a mask. Get him excited. Somehow, give him candy. You have to give, give out candy. You want to give out, you want to get your kids into it? Give them, every time they have a good question, give them candy at the stadium. No, no, but I say, you would say, hey, you know what, here's a uh, Laffy Taffy, here's a box of Mike and I, here's, all of a sudden the kid piles up, wow, this is unbelievable. This is something they want to go back to. I can't wait for Pesach in their mother's house. <laughs> no one's thinking about candy because we're so focused on a clean house and a clean house and a clean house and we don't even have anything. Well, we focus on creating the experience, not getting there and then just being dead by the experience. It has to be uplifting. In fact, based on this concept, we can understand something that is not understood by many. You know, in the Torah it says that Hashem came to Moshe. And He told Moshe to tell Paro, take, tell Paro, we're going to take the Jewish people out for three days. Since when does Hashem not tell the truth? Hashem went, was He ever really intending to take them out for three days? said three days. Moshe went back to Paro, let my nation go, three days. 
What kind of thing is this? Three days. You, were not, you really want to take them out, right? Obviously, with hindsight, we see Hashem wanted to take them out for free, for good. That was it. So what does He mean, take them out for three days? And another question, which is the classic question, is that we were supposed to be in Egypt 400 years. We were only there 210. So the Ahmed Yaakov says, and here's what happened. Is that right? We were supposed to be 400. We were only 210. Why were we only 210? So the commentaries basically say is that Hashem calculated from when Yitzchak was born because Paror made it much harder on the Jewish people. So let's explain this. He says, here's what really happened. He says, when Hashem said we're going to leave for three days, He really wanted to take us out only for three days. And the original intent was they would leave for three days and then they would come back. That was the plan. The problem was that Paro said no. And Paro kept saying no. So Hashem said, if you're going to say no, then I'm going to have to just take them out for good because I can't deal with you. And so how, right when Paro said no was when the work got much harder. That wasn't an accident. That was deliberately set up by God. That He said, if Paro said no, means I can't take them out for three days. That means in the next few months, I have to accomplish what I would have accomplished in the next 190 years. So the work got much harder and the Jewish people couldn't deal with it because they were doing 190 years in a few months. Says of Yaakov, what was the point of taking them out for three days? The point of taking them out for three days was to accomplish this same thing. To give them a three-day experience of freedom. He was going to bring them back in for 190 years. But why? what happened at this point, like we said, the Jewish people in 49 levels of Tum'ah, which means they were so a part of society, so a part of Egyptian society, that you couldn't differentiate between the two. Hashem was going to give us a, week, a few days where we have a different experience. We were bringing a Korban Pesach, where we were sacrificing to our God, we were sort of remembering who we are. And then based on those three days, with the strength that we get from those three days, we would have went back in and lasted 190 years. But because we couldn't leave for the three days, Hashem said, I just have to take them out for good right now because I can't do it. But the three days there was going to be the original goal. This is not a sketch. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't just to try to ease him in. Hashem said three days. He meant three days. What was he going to create with the three days? The same thing that we try to create with every single Pesach. A three-day break, a three-day uplifting experience to give the Jewish people, to enable them to deal with the next 190 years. The same thing that was accomplished with the second Beit HaMikdash was a 400-year, over 400-year experience to enable us to deal with the next 2,000 years. We have to give our families and ourselves a week experience that gets us through the rest, the rest of the year. That gets us through, that gives us an experience, something that we look towards, something that we're energized by, something that we want to emulate, that we should prepare ourselves in other ways. Not just in having a clean house, and not just in having food at the table, but prepare ourselves in a way where that week is an experience. That's why our Chachamim recommend that people shouldn't work on Cholam Wayne. It's not recommend. The law is that you're not supposed to work unless certain situations, which... Almost everyone is exempt, technically. But the, the concept is there. Why is the concept there? Because it's really supposed to be an eight-day experience. It's not just supposed to be one day you run back and forth. It's supposed to be something that's a whole change in atmosphere. It's supposed to be the husband and the wife and the children. It feels different. We are different. The meals are different. The attitude is different. The feeling is different. It's not just that we... Okay, we do a holiday, do a sad day, fall asleep, 
go back to work, come back, get through two days. It's a whole week of uplifting. And it's a whole week that we can have something that we can point towards that can give us energy for the rest of the year. And that's really what, what the message of the Matzah as opposed to the Chametz is that the Matzah is saying we're making a distinction. We're making ourselves separate. We're working. We're not just flowing. I'll give you a little story that I think um, a little bit you see a little of this concept. There was a rabbi in Lakewood in about 1980 who opened up this outreach program for different like cities in New Jersey. So I think he went to the city, maybe Cherry Hill. Where's Cherry Hill? Pennsylvania? It's in New Jersey? So he went to, he started in Cherry Hill, this little class. And this rabbi started this class with a few people in the town. He tried to now gather together some people in the town. So how's he going to do it? He went to a local religious man and he asked them, do you know people in the town that would have any interest in a Gemara class? And he called those people. He got together a few people. And then the man went back to the, the rabbi went back to the man. He said, "You know, do you know anyone in town who like speaks Yiddish? They speak Yiddish. They probably have some Jewish roots, and they might be interested." So he called all the Yiddish-speaking people, and he got a hold of one man who was told this man speaks Yiddish. His name is Harvey. Left him a message. The man never um, called back. The man didn't respond. Okay, first Tuesday night of the class, start of the class, and he gives the class. And this man, Harvey, walks in. So right before the class, the rabbi, Harvey comes over to the rabbi and he says, I heard you were looking for me. Uh, what is it you like? He says, I heard you speak Yiddish and I thought maybe you'd be interested. We're starting a class in Gemara. I thought maybe you'd be interested. Harvey starts to yell. You're calling me. That's why you called me out to come and join this Torah class. I am so finished with that. In Poland, my mother was killed. All my friends' parents were killed. I watched them killed. I have no interest in the religion. I never go to shul. I never care about anything that's Jewish. The God is fake. Everything about it is fake. I can't believe what kind of chutzpah you have to call me to come to a class. So the rabbi now is a little. He says. I just called you. I was going to talk to you. I wasn't going to tell you. You have to. I'm, I apologize. I'm sorry. He says, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm out. He says, Rabbi says, can you do me a favor? There's people here. If you walk out right now, it's going to create a little bit of a bad impression. Could you stay for a few minutes and then you'll go? He says, okay. So Harvey stayed for 15 minutes and walked out. Next Tuesday night, Rabbi God gave, gave the class. Harvey walks in and he sits in for the whole class. And say a word. Third week, Harvey walks in. And this time he walks in with a brand new Gemara, which obviously he bought. Okay. Rabbi doesn't say a word. After the class is over, Harvey asks the rabbi, he says, Did you ever hear of the town of Prujin? He says, Yeah, it's a town in Poland. Yeah, I know that town. There's actually where Moshe Feinstein's uncle comes from that town. He says, wow, you really? He says, yeah. He says, yeah, yeah, I remember him. He was a great rabbi in that town. He says, that's where I'm from. Me and my mother, we're from that town. He says, wow, beautiful. He says, do you know that rabbi? Anything about him? He says, that rabbi, now he has a book. He has a sefer that he wrote. He says, could you bring me that sefer? He says, yeah, I don't own it myself. I'll go to the yeshiva library. I can get you the sefer. Man, I was very excited. Next week, Harvey came to the class. The rabbi brings the sefer from the rabbi of Peruzin, where Moshe finds his uncle. 
Harvey pulls the sefer to the side after the class is over. He opens the sefer, opens it up, and he sees says in there Rabbi Eliyahu Feinstein, I think, from the town of Prusine, and the man is like putting his hand over the word Prusine, and he's sitting there and he's starting to cry. He's starting to cry, and tears are just streaming down his eyes. The rabbi doesn't say anything. He leaves him with the book. Every week, six weeks, seven weeks, Harvey comes every week. Finally, on the seventh week, the rabbi tells the class, the next week is Per Hanukkah, and so in honor of Hanukkah, we're going to be making a party. Okay? Eighth week comes, everyone comes, they all make this party, and the Harvey comes to the side, and he says, Rabbi, can you do me a favor? I want to talk to you a little bit. He says, you see, my name... I'd like you from now on to start calling me Yankel. Why is that? He says, my name is really Yankel. And I'm from Prusine. And I'm very sick. I'm so sick that I only have a few weeks left. And then that's it. He said, but you know, I know that soon I'm going to go to heaven. And I'm going to greet my mother. And he says, to tell you the truth, I told you I never go to shul. It's not true. I go to shul once a year. Not on Yom Kippur. On my mother's yard site. Because I want to give her that honor to say Kaddish for her every Yonki, every day, every year on her yard side. He says, but I was thinking, I'm going to come to heaven, my mother's going to see me, and she's going to say, Yanko, what'd you do for me? And I'm going to say, I said Kaddish on your yard side. And I know she's going to say, that's not a lot. She says, but now I'm going to be able to go and say, I learned the daf of Gemara. I learned the page of Gemara for Yuma. He says, and that's going to make her happy. He said, oh, Rabbi, I want to thank you. And from now on, call me Yanko for my mother. And a little while later, he passed away. But he got that experience. He got something where even in his whole life of darkness, of concentration camp, of ghetto, of never really leaving that ghetto, and never leaving that mindset, he gave himself something. We have to give ourselves something. Life moves and life goes and we get mundane and we get dragged down and we get pulled in and we get busy and we get like the rest of society is. We try to be a little different. We're not that different. For a week, we're really different. We can't eat anywhere. We can't... uh, Things are different. Things are unique and hopefully things are uplifting. And if we give ourselves that experience, we'll give ourselves and our family what they need to be uplifted throughout the rest of the year.